Welcome to Securing Critical Infrastructure, the regulatory versus the practical, a special innovationoz.com podcast series brought to you by Sentinel One. The emergence of the critical infrastructure legislation is driving protection to the top of the agenda for many Australian businesses as they grapple to improve their cybersecurity posture. Compounding this challenge is the disconnect between the hype around cyber threats and a practical understanding of what to do at the organisational level. In this podcast series, we speak to independent experts who will step away from the technical and focus on the practicalities of the new legislation. So welcome to the Sentinel One podcast, Securing Critical Infrastructure, the regulatory versus the practical. Uh, Today we're talking about critical infrastructure as it relates to financial services, and really looking at what the the technical discussions are, as well as how we strengthen our cybersecurity posture in financial services. Um, I'm going to keep off by saying there's a lot of words that get thrown around in the sector. You know, financial services, particularly critical infrastructure, AI, um, the legislation. What are we really talking about here? Because I think um, sometimes we can lose focus of what what the language means um, and endpoints, of course. And I think we, we talked about this um, in a previous conversation, David, where we were talking about endpoints and securing them in a financial services context. Can you paint me a picture of how you see the landscape? All right. Look, um, I think... Look, it, it's a fair point. I think there's a lot to be said around this space, and I think there's a lot of confusion around what people are actually saying. I think um, practitioners are a lot more crystal clear than uh, what a lot of other people, um, you know, perceive. So if you want my my view, what we're really talking about is let's talk about critical infrastructure. So we know there's 11 sectors that have been defined in SOCI, which is the security obligations for critical infrastructure legislation that came out recently. Financial services is one of those sectors. I think really what we're talking about for critical infrastructure and the software legislation, what it's really focused on is how do we ensure that services are delivered to the community, to the nation, to support our society, whether it's electricity um, generation, it's retail, it's um, specific educational services, it's financial services. So all these things that keep society operating and moving. And how do we manage the digital risk associated with that? And I think digital risk is a key word for me versus just cyber. You mentioned endpoints about, you know, from a financial services perspective, how how does an... Uh, how, does, how do financial services need to think about securing endpoints? I don't think they do. In fact, I think that's the wrong way to be thinking about how are they going to manage uh, endpoints of customers and consumers. They don't. They don't have the access to those devices. So I think there's an architectural um, uh, process or thought methodology that needs to be thought about it. Hang on, what we need to do is we need to protect the data wherever that data resides, and we need to protect the end user interaction through that data. I see an endpoint as really just a, it's a, it's a device that allows an identity to access and manipulate data in some way, shape or form. We can talk about that end, that end device being compromised, um, but ultimately, if you have the right controls around the data and the end user 
I think uh, there is less need for that consumer endpoint, which is different to an internal network and protecting the internal network or the employee network and the employee end devices. I think that's a very different story because that allows an organisation uh, adversary to get access to the internal network would hold and then start to compromise that way. Wayne, can I ask you about that? Because in my mind, you've got obviously mobile banking and devices that sit with consumers. Yep. There's ATMs, there's, you know, co-banking facilities in regional areas. Like how do you, how does Central One view, when we're talking about endpoints, I think it's a really important distinction to make. If it's it, it's all of those things, and and you know could could include the Swift network, right? They, they are endpoints, their servers, you know that that's part of that infrastructure as well. Uh, making sure that interbanking communication is and and financial transactions uh, are done, um, you know, uh, with with good efficacy, and uh, you know have have logging and transactions that you know all the all of the good stuff. You need to make sure that those transactions are not um, interfered with, uh, but also yeah, the internal. Uh, plumbing to a financial institution and all the way to, you know, someone doing uh, banking on the, on their mobile phone, Android, iOS, wh whatever that would be. Um, th they're all critical. Um, look, if you asked a, you know, a customer what, what, what critical infrastructure would look like, it would be, you know, an end device. You know, you know I, I want my, my phone to work and transfer funds, um, you know, in, in a safe and secure way. I'm sure the industry and government is talking about, you know, the the, the organization, uh, but also ensuring that, um, you know, these transactions, you know, there is some, there's some protection about, you know, what transactions are happening, and and we're we're starting to see this in the industry where, you know, financial institutions are starting to block transactions to so crypto mining as or or cryptocurrency exchanges and things like that, and. You make a new transaction to a to 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 a a, a new organisation, and it says, "Oh, this is the first time you've done that. Are you sure you want to do that?" So, so an endpoint could be a browser session, um, and it could be you know physical uh, Swift. So it's it's it, it's all of those things. I do remember a journalist once, right at the beginning of talking about endpoints, said that at endpoint, some people, many people thought it was something that looked good in jeans, but it's, <laughs> I think we've probably moved yeah. on from that. And and talking about um. I guess, you know, over time, um, I wanted to come back to you, David, you've been in the financial services sector, you've been in cybersecurity, you know, financial services was one of the earlier kind of standouts as we started to understand what we're talking about from a critical infrastructure perspective, because it's so critical to a functioning economy and society. How, in terms of that maturity, how is that now? And are they still leading and what is it that people in financial services are looking at to make sure they maintain that kind of maturity and leadership? Yeah, look, I think it's fair to say that financial services are probably the one of the leading industries when it comes to cybersecurity. I think they've had a lot of focus and investment in uh, in cybersecurity over the over the past many years. I think there's a lot of uh, there's been a lot of regulation that's driven them down that path as well, not just the, the risk element of that. So uh, yes, I still think they're one of the leading sectors. I would say that certain parts of government are also leading. Um, telcos are also strong in, in that space. In terms of financial services specifically, what are they looking at? What are they thinking about? You know, I, th I think there's a number of different ways on how they're thinking about it. If you think about a typical cybersecurity program, there's threat intelligence, there's identity and access management, there is network security, there is cloud security. I think all those different domains need to come into that conversation. 
I think the key thing is, and I think this is where financial services do a pretty good job of it, is truly understanding the threat landscape in terms of what are the threat actors that are trying to exploit them or trying to compromise them, and what does that overall risk to their organisation look like? So risk is clearly if there's a threat, that that threat. If I'm vulnerable to that threat, I have risk. And then being able to prioritise that risk um, accordingly to be able to understand where you need to prioritise your activity. Um, every organisation is going to be different. Some organisations are going to have very strong um you know, defensive capability. Some organisations are going to have strong threat intelligence capability. Some organisations are going to have strong identity access management capabilities. So I think, you know, it's, it's up to that individual organisation to find the right balance for themselves. I think from an emerging risk perspective, we can't really have a conversation today without talking about large language models and generative AI. There's a lot of challenges coming through there. So I'm sure some of those emerging risks, I think frauds and scams from a financial services perspective, is you know front and center, and I saw that in my financial services days, where we saw fraud and scams start to skyrocket. And scams, it's been highly publicised in the media in Australia recently. Financial services were one of the you know earlier verticals or, or industries to really understand um, you know critical infrastructure and, and its importance to protect financial services. Um, are they still leading that maturity? And what's what are they grappling with now? How is that? How many of that have changed over over recent years? Yeah, look, I think financial. I think it's fair to say financial services is, is still one of the more mature industries or sectors when it comes to thinking about cyber risk and managing cyber risk and, and cyber security in general. Um, I think there are some other sectors in there that, that obviously are, are fairly mature. There's elements of government. There's telcos, etc. But I think financial services are probably the ones who have had the most focus on from a regulatory perspective over many years. Plus, they've had a lot of um, financial investment support and focus internally, just understanding the, the customer expectations, customer privacy drivers, and obviously fighting things like financial crime and fraud, which is sort of my background. Uh, thinking about things that they're thinking about, I think... You know, you can't really have a conversation with any without uh, with any organisation without talking about generative AI and large language models and what does that look like. So I'm sure that's on their radar. I think from a financial services perspective, one of the big issues that they're being challenged with is around fraud and scams. Uh, you know, we and particularly more in a digital world, in the digital world that we live in, we're seeing scams and fraud become a little bit more prevalent. Than ever before. I know my my previous history, scams was the biggest concern. Uh, was a very very big concern on the fraud side. And if you think about what we're seeing in media today, or in in government today, you know, it, it's in the press quite significantly. And we're seeing these uh, we're seeing ads on the TV talking about scams and and fraud and those elements. I think it's a big issue that's hitting society. I know the the um, you know the banks are really focused on that. Some of the things that they're doing, they're doing. Now, there's a lot more focus on public-private partnerships, engaging with government, engaging with AFP and ACSC, a lot of cross-collaboration and partnership with the Australian Financial Crimes Exchange, the banks working together to um, try and address these frauds and these scams and also look, have more intelligence from a cybersecurity perspective so that they can defend not just their own organisations, but the financial services ecosystem more broadly. I'm going to uh, bring it back to you, Wayne, talking about AI 
this year we've seen a real um, you know, the penny drop in terms of the power of AI. It is kind of the core to Sentinel One's you know technology approach to security. Um, you know, over a long period of time. So the generative AI that you mentioned, David, being used, um, you know, offensively by bad actors, and then how how are we really looking at what AI can do to actually help? you know, build resilience into an organisation. It's obviously incredibly important right now and people understand its power more than they might have a few years ago. Yeah, so uh, just even from the genesis of Sentinel one we started started with uh, static AI and behavioural AI models, right? That was kind of, we were trying to solve those problems back in 2013. So we've been we've been kind of doing some of this for, for, for over 10 years. So the static AI models, uh, you know, just look for the, the anomalous or the malicious behavior outside of the you know standard deviation out, outside of the norm um and then wrapping that behavioral ai right so something something is now acting uh, um, um, uh, maliciously and then uh, even even that uh it is is a challenge but then you know the 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 attackers are starting to get more sophisticated and they you know they're using identity attacks so uh, now, now we're having to do sophisticated threat hunting, looking for the anomalous behavior, uh, and it's there's a lot of data, right? A banking, you know, a, a bank would have thousands of employees doing um, working from home. You know, um, they'd have uh, hot desking. So the, the amount of data that that's going around trying to find uh, a bad actor in that is is incredibly difficult to do, and it's it's time consuming, and there's a lot of humans involved. So you need to be able to use generative ai and, and, and we do that so we'll have a query language where you can ask it you know natural language queries uh, and and then it will analyze that and say okay well this is this is the you know this is what uh, a very complicated query will look like uh, and then it will hunt for that data and you'll get a you'll get a data output and then we can say uh you know using large, large uh, language models what does this output mean you know what? 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 What is this data you've just returned me? And it will give you, you know, an English or, a, you know, a, a natural language response to that. So it's, it, it becomes incredibly quick um, uh, to to hunt uh, for these uh, anom- you know, these anomalies or malicious uh, actors in in the data, and then it can also give you output, which means we can do more with less. Like we talked about, there being you know uh, the the challenges on many fronts. Um, you know, we've got um, uh, social engineering, we've got scams, uh, we've got, you know, just a normal time type of uh, malware. Uh, banks just are running out of time to, you know, to, to spend uh, looking for this. So being able to use these natural language models to to hunt for that data is, is incredibly important these days. I'm really interested in that the kind of skills shortage across every industry, but I think particularly pronounced in, in cyber and some of that social engineering stuff and the scams and then kind of just the sheer volume of kind of, you know, threats coming through. How how does that free it up? Like you talked about ability to kind of present information or, or assessments to people. How are you seeing this AI and the ability to deliver information to people who are a part of the cyber team, but not necessarily particularly technical as an example. Is that a, a really a, a new phenomenon? How important is oh, it? It's, it's, it's incredibly important because, um, you know, back in the day, uh, you, you, you needed to be, you know, a forensic master to do incident response. You needed to be able to unpack Metasploit or Meterpreter or some of these, you know, uh, the attack frameworks to understand an attacker. 
Uh, now you have the thing, you know, you have the machine just telling you in English. You know, you know we, we, luckily we have the MITRE ATT&CK framework, so we can, we have a consistent taxonomy to, to talk, you know, between uh, agencies and, and companies and the banking sector. So we all know what a, you know, a process injection is because, you know, it's, it's mapped to MITRE. Uh, but then, you know, this skill shortage, we have to upskill people. So when you, if you get uh, junior grads uh, coming in, you know, the, the, you have to get them up to speed really quickly. And, it, and if the, the tools are there and they respond in a, in a language that you understand, as in your natural language, then it's easier for them to upskill and it's e easier for them to interpret the responses. And then it's easier for them to ask questions like, did you see something to do with APT29? you know, or, or, uh, with, you know, uh, North Europe in, in, uh, attacking a server, right. Asking it in a, in a language and then getting an actual query back it parsing through the query and says, oh, well, I actually saw, you know, this, this connection coming from Poland or whatever the response is. So you ask it in natural language is responding. So we can upskill junior staff quicker uh, and they don't have to go right into the weeds, uh, to do incident response. It's really interesting. David, are you seeing similar? Well, look, uh, um, I am. I, I think I'll probably want to take a step back on some of that and just clarify some of the language. I think, to Wayne's point, AI has been around for a long time. I think you mentioned you've been doing it since about 2013. I mean, AI in its sort of commercial um, applications, you know, kicked off in about 2010. And you know, a lot of the risks we've spoken about or that's being spoken about now, bias, traceability, auditability, fairness, those issues to do with AI and machine learning have been around for a while. I think what we've seen in the past nine months, and I will say since the advent of OpenAI and the release of ChatGPT, is historically that technology was really well controlled by specialist individuals who had access to large amounts of training data sets. Now, with OpenAI and the advent of what we're seeing, it's now open and accessible to the masses, including the criminals, including the adversaries, probably more so than ever before. And now, you know, these large language models are using a lot of publicly sourced data. So I think one of the challenges there and I think this is a subtle difference between traditional AI and, and what we've seen. Similar to you, Wayne, Netscope, they have a lot of AI ML capability. We use that for identifying threat. We use that for uh, helping with data classification, et cetera. Generative AI, however, um, you know, that was a well-controlled environment. Generative AI, though, there's, some, there's a lot of question marks about whether or not you can trust the output. You know, um, it, because it comes back to that training data and how that model's been used. And you touched on something too around sort of the, the way that our skills, from a skill set's perspective, training people so that they can use these new tools, because that's what it is. It's a new tool in terms of how we do business, making sure they use them the right way. And you'll find that people who are writing the right queries can get sharper, more clearer, better quality output and quality answers. And then you have the flip side of prompt injection, which is how can these large language models be manipulated to give you a adverse outcome or adverse output versus the, the, the way the machine or the model has been designed 
to, to you know to produce an outcome so you can actually trick that model so you know i think that's what we're seeing in the adversarial world in terms of and you sort of mentioned it as well um Raina, let's talk about that human re- the, the the skills challenge i think as a CISO, as a security practitioner, I care about two things, mean time to detect, mean time to contain. And every time we have to put a person into that loop, it slows that down. So we need to be able to start to be able to do this much faster at machine speed. Our adversaries are doing it by leveraging these capabilities and these technologies. We as an industry need to figure out how do we continue to innovate and drive and push forward our ability to detect and contain and do that at machine speed. We're sort of, we're coming close to time and I wanted to kind of ask a final question because David, you've, there's some really good um, examples where we see in every industry about, you know, AI and its power, but also that we can't lose that kind of sense of um, interrogation that only comes with human experience. So I guess, you know, on, on that, that, you know, and part of that in this context goes to kind of collaboration and are you seeing what I'm seeing, that kind of thing. So whilst we might have these, you know, AI engines working defensively, uh, the role of that kind of communication and those broader networks, I guess, across um, organisations that are talking to others, AFP would be an example, cybersecurity centre, you know, what does the ecosystem need to look like to make sure that AI is a useful tool but not distracting us from the whole picture? Well, look, I think it sort of comes back to um, what I would call a responsible AI approach and what does that governance framework look like? Now, for me, responsible AI is the ability to be able to use AI in a legal and ethical manner. Um, And therefore, how does, you know, how do organisations make sure that this technology is being used in that legal and ethical manner? And what are the pillars that they need to start to think about? I touched on something before, security and privacy breaches. Uh, fairness and transparency, model robustness, accountability, uh, traceability and auditability of the decision-making. They're the pillars, I think, that comes back to how do we as practitioners and, and the ecosystem, how are they thinking about how these models are being used, how are they being governed? And remember, governance isn't just about risk management. D- governance, if done right, is about ensuring a better quality outcome. And yes, part of that is managing risks, but a better quality outcome, and, and you know, if we if we do this properly, we'll start to see this race to the top of AI safety, and that is what we need to see across the. Wayne, industry. I might kind of you know, final question to you, because Sentinel One's sort of view and the conversations you're having with organisations, all of those things and considerations that David was talking about in terms of where AI fits in within a broader, um, I guess, strategy, is that. Are you seeing those conversations like alive and well within organizations? Uh, they are. Um, the, the, the risks and the threats are, are, are kind of are bigger than that, though. They, they're worried about, you know, the, the, the lights being on so, and, and the adversaries, adversaries getting in. So, so they're more concerned with having tools to protect themselves. And the, the risk in the governments is kind of, you know, we'll leave that till, till later which is nat- natural for, for humans to do that. Obviously, the, the government's uh, GRC people are going to be working on, on that, and, and David's right, we should be doing more work on that. But this, this, you know, these technologies are racing ahead, and um, you know, we need to kind of we can't, need to embrace them on a defensive side, uh, irrespective of, of, of the governance, and that's what we're seeing is people trying to, 
uh, trying to use these tools irrelevant of governments um, uh, it, it, to defend against these attacks. So, yeah, it is it is a it, it is a challenging landscape, um, but people are, are are just using the tools they can uh, today. And I think too, like um, you're right, people are, are just trying to get out there and use it, irrespective of the governance. But that talks to the point as to why you need governance, because otherwise you'll end up with bad quality output. If you're not enforcing that quality, if you're not driving that that race to IA safety and IA quality, then we're just going to be doing more things badly faster, right? And I, that's I, don't, I don't disagree, but they have to be done in parallel. Like if if you are if you're not embracing the tools that the attackers are using, if you're not, you're... well, no, it's, it's not about not embracing it by any means. It's about making sure that what you're developing, because I think there is such a risk with generative AI of us getting it wrong and the ramifications of getting it wrong are massive. Absolutely, uh, unfortunately, massive. it's it's out there whether we like it or not, and the attackers are going to use it. So it's you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's you're right. The attackers are using it, but how we use it to defend ourselves, why we wouldn't want to think we're going down a path and we have really bad output and it does nothing. That's not a good outcome for anyone. And, of course, the, the attackers aren't going to use it, but there's two sides of the coin, right? There's two sides to this conversation. Attackers are using it, they're exploiting it, and they're going to do it how they want. And, yes, we need to defend about that. We need to defend against that. But how do we make sure our defences are quality? I mean that's really that's a really important yeah, I, conversation. I, I think it will just and mature yes. over time. And and look, there'll be there'll be governance wrappers yeah. around that, but some, sometimes governance takes a little bit of time to you know get some uh, coherent de you know decision making around that. And you know sometimes the, the the horse is bolted, and especially here here at the moment, it's you know we we are seeing you know on the ground attacks happening. You know I get to see quite a lot of attacks that are just you know constant. And and companies are just trying to stop the bleeding, you know. If you, and the attack is not a yeah. conversation about how you use it internally, right? That's how you're being. Like there, there's yeah. two different conversations here, I think. So yeah, tell yeah. me about automation in that regard. So you've got large organisations that are trying to stay nimble, you know, by partnering with fintechs. There's a supply chain there. The role of automation in that context. So so the way we we kind of uh, we. We use a static AI model and a behavioral AI model to, to map whether something is either malicious, suspicious, benign, or unknown, right? So if it is malicious or suspicious, then we can take automated response, so responding at machine speed, and then doing automated remediation and, and rollback of an attack. And then, and this could happen at 2 a.m., and if the company doesn't have a 24 by 7 SOC, um, you know, your remediation has happened, the machine has fixed what it thinks is the problem at 2 a.m. And then you get to investigate at 8 o'clock the next morning. And, you know, you get to come in and, and talk to the generative AI and say, what do you think happened? And, you know, they can respond. And then you can, as a human, check the, check the response, right? You can check the data. You can drill down into whatever you want. Um, or, you know, you can just uh, trust, trust what it says, right? And then you can check you know, whatever the issue was, whether it's a server or an end, endpoint machine, you can check with the user whether everything is stored. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it's having the machines work for you when, you when you're not there. And that's what a lot of companies are doing. And, and there was, it was mostly driven out of people that don't have a SOC or a SIEM. But what we're finding is the large enterprises are using it to free up the resources. So then they can, you know, they can take their threat hunting team and do higher order tasks. We're all busy. So then they can just go, okay, well, 
maybe we'll do governance risk and compliance for generative AI. Now, now we've freed up time to actually do, you know, governance work or, or strategy work rather than playing whack-a-mole. Um, so it's kind of freeing up time to do higher order. Uh, we, we, we generally see when we put automation and, and AI into, into companies that we don't free up staff, you know, they don't lay off the security team. They just get to do the stuff they, you know, that no. they should have been doing all along. There's endless <laughs> work to be done. Yes. It's speed, the speed of the technology landscape, but also maintaining the thoughtfulness and the consideration. It sounds there's a lot going on at the same time, and um, it's been a really valuable discussion. Thank you so much um, for both David and uh, Wayne. Appreciate you joining today. Thank Thanks, Corin. Thanks, David. Thank you. enjoyed this securing critical infrastructure the regulatory versus the practical podcast brought to you by sentinel one for more keep tuning into innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit sentinelone.com